Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. Millions of Americans will be voting this November for their favorite candidate. When they head out to the polls, some will enjoy sunshine, some will get cold and rain, and maybe even a few folks will see snowflakes. Weather might even keep some people from heading out the door. Just how does weather affect elections, and more generally, politics? Today we'll pose these questions and more to Harry Enton from CNN Politics. Harry has a passion for both weather and politics. We'll look back at what history has taught us and what the future may hold for the intersection of weather and politics. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. Harry, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. It's my pleasure. I call myself a weather geek or as some who are truly weather geeks call themselves weather weenies. Weather weenies, weather geeks. Yeah, we embrace the term. And you know, as we, as you know, we had you on the, the television version of the show and it was such a great show. We wanted to have you back the really deep dive because with the podcast, we, we can go for about 40 minutes. So I want to go all over the place and feel free to take me wherever you want to go as well. So first of all, you're at a new place from the last time we talked to you. I, your, last time we spoke, you were at 538. You're now at CNN. Tell us about that and what you're doing over at CNN. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I basically am doing the same thing, right? I'm doing electoral analysis, um, but I decided, you know, even though I love 538, that I wanted a change of pace and wanted to reach a broader audience, which CNN allows versus 538. If you're a true geek, you read 538, you may listen to the 538 podcast, but CNN obviously reaches a wider mass audience. And I'll add one little extra thing, which is that on one of the morning programs, they now know that I'm a big weather guy. And so it could be the case that maybe come December when there's a snowstorm, I might be appearing on air talking about the GFS, the NAM, the Euro, the UK Met. We'll see what happens. Oh, well, well, we'll see what happens with that as well. I certainly know some of the folks over there at CNN Weather. Now, I know when you were at 538, you, you know, talked politics, but I think you had a, a broader palette of things that you would often think about or write about. I mean, are, are you strictly focusing on politics there at CNN? Not really. I mean, yeah, right now, obviously, I am, you know, with the mid with the midterms being so close. But uh, when I was at 538, I did occasional weather articles and I've actually written a few while I've been at CNN. Uh, I mean, usually they are when. It's snowing in New York, which is where my passion is, and then it doesn't feel so much like work. It feels like fun. So uh, towards the end, uh, March and April of last year, when there were late snowstorms in New York City, I did, in fact, write on snow. I believe that we've had five consecutive years, I want to say, of at least 30-plus inches of snow in Central Park, which is, I think, only the second time in recorded history that we've done that. So I wrote about that a little bit. So which, 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 which are you more geek about, political geekery? or weather geekery, or is it about the same or more or less politics, but weather's the sort of hobby? I, I, I think weather may sort of be the hobby, but I will say that if, 
in politics, I do not root for a particular side. I only root to try and be as accurate as possible in the predictions. In weather, I am not as unbiased. I do root for the snow. I have a pro-snow bias. I, you know, when that NAM shows all that moisture that is probably never actually going to fall, uh, I still go to it and I go, hey, you never know, maybe it was right in that one storm. But of course, I try and rein it in, at least publicly, so I can uh, put forth at least an accurate view of what's going on. But that's certainly a bigger play in weather than it is a problem for me in politics. Yeah, and I want to kind of revisit something you said a bit later in the podcast, but I want to kind of sort of reset the clock here. Where did you first get your interest in weather? I mean, what, what was the origin of that? I, I think like many young children on the East Coast, I saw weather as a potential to get out of school. Um, I think that there are a lot of people who hear my name and think, oh, he's such a nerd, he probably loves school. Nothing could be further from the truth. Gosh, did I hate school and want those days off so so much? So when I was younger, you know, the idea being was if I followed the forecast, I could get an idea of whether or not we might get a day off. And so I just started following stuff. I think I started off, you know, really watching the Weather Channel when I was in fourth or fifth grade. And then it kind of developed from there. And as I was getting a little bit older and going from elementary to middle to high school, there was a real development of an online community that had an interest in weather. And they weren't just discussing whether or not it was going to snow or rain or have wind or whatever. They were also discussing the different model outputs and the different scenarios. And while some of the people who were in that community actually went on to meteorological careers as their mainstay. Others, such as me, picked up that knowledge and then decided to go a different path. And, you know, I want to talk about that because, I mean, obviously you're a very smart guy. Did you ever consider getting a degree in meteorology? And I guess the reason I'm asking that is I think you're living proof that you can still have a great uh, sort of interest in meteorology and still work it into whatever you're doing, even if you don't get a degree. Yeah, I, I mean, certainly I think that I had some interest in in getting a meteorological degree. I mean, I went so far as I went to weather camp at Penn State, which is still a great program that I believe exists very to this day. Um, but what I think essentially happened was I found that I was better at the electoral stuff. Um, and the other big problem for me is that my passion is pretty much in snow and it doesn't actually snow all 12 months of the year. So if you start getting past April in the Northeast and you go from, say, late April all the way through mid to late October, the chances for snow are very slim. And I realized that it wasn't really my passion to discuss the heat of the summer days. And I wanted to do something I was passionate about at all points. Now, let's pivot the discussion here. Uh, we're talking with senior writer and analyst for CNN Politics, Harry Enton, and it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, you are a political analyst, but you like weather. Explain the similarities between forecasting the weather and forecasting an election. Yeah, I, I, I think that there are a number of similarities, not the least of which is that there is gr a great amount of uncertainty. And I believe that the best meteorologists, like the best political analysts, are able to articulate what is the most likely possibility, as well as the uncertainty around that, and that there's a range of probabilities. And that's something that I think weather does fairly well, and I think it's fairly accepted, right? You have a percentage chance of a showers if you go on to weather.com or weather.gov or 
AccuWeather or whatever, uh, that is less developed in political forecasting. My former boss and still my very good current friend, Mr. Silver at 538, obviously pioneered the idea, oh, there's an X percentage chance of something going on. But I've actually found that a lot of people really can't grasp what that means. And so I think that politics and electoral predictions kind of lag weather in trying to relate the uncertainties to the public and getting them to understand it. And that's one of the things I've been working on at CNN is trying to figure out ways in which I can get people to see a point prediction as the most likely probability, while at the same time illustrating to them that there is a great bit of uncertainty around that, which of course is something I think that meteorologists and people doing the, uh, especially public forecasting, have to deal with every day. Now, that's interesting that you say that the meteorological community actually is ahead of the political community because I hear whispers and rumors and innuendo when I go to science meetings or even on Twitter that meteorologists are still bad at conveying uncertainty. Now, of course, we do things like probabilistic forecasting, QPF and the, t and the like. But there's this discussion about when we put a number out there, for example, uh, you pull up your app and you see a seven-day forecast for uh, a temperature or for a rain chance. Uh, Norcross, Brian Norcross, formerly of the Weather Channel, often talks about that we put that number out there and people see it. And that, that number at seven days is not the same number at one day out, but we don't put any kind of caveats and uncertainty on that. What are your thoughts on that? Because that's something Brian has really been talking about lately. Yeah, I, I think that there's certainly uh, some fairness to that, uh, that the idea being, especially on temperature forecasts, which don't tend to come with a range, at least with precipitation forecasts, right, you'll say, oh, there's a 70% chance or a 90% chance. You're trying to quantify uncertainty in some way um, versus, you know, with a temperature where you're really not doing that. And whether or not your cold front, let's just say it's a mid-spring day in the Northeast uh, and you're in New York and that there's a question whether or not that cold front will recede back into New England. And that I don't think is necessarily articulated as well as, say, precipitation probabilities. But I do think that you're right, that there's still much room for improvement in the meteorological community. I was more speaking about the fact that at least that there's been some progress, I think, there versus in the political and the electoral um, community. I really think that we're still lagging. And, you know, even the way that I've been presenting um, uncertainty in my forecast, and we can get into that if you want. Uh, there are still a lot of people who are like, ew, wow, that's a really wide margin of error. How is that even a forecast? And to me, I say, look, I've looked back over time and I've looked at the polling. You know, it's kind of a mix in some ways of a climatology slash meteorolo meteorology. And these are what how I feel comfortable saying how certain I am. And people just sometimes can't take uncertainty in the world. And that's a, something that I, faces, I think faces both meteorologists as well as as political forecasters. Yeah, and, and even in the climate world, too, which I, I get into as well, I often hear people say, well, there's some uncertainty in the climate model, so we can't believe it. And I remind them that we use information with uncertainty almost every day. There's a lot of usable information even when there's uncertainty, which I want to now go to the political modeling and forecasting that you do. Um, what, what type of data do you use when you make your political forecast? Yeah, I, I, I would say that there are a few uh, a few key tools. Number one, obviously, we're looking at polls. Um, and, you know, I think that there was a lot of discussion after 2016 about the accuracy and the precision of public polling. I'll point out, you know, I think one of the great problems of 2016 was that there was an inability on 
some forecasters to relay properly the uncertainty around their estimates because they didn't look at enough years of data, right? I think that this is something that also happens in meteorology all the time was, oh, something hasn't happened in the last 20 years, therefore we can't possibly see it happen. But in fact, if you take into account a larger data set, which is what we do with the forecasting I'm currently doing at uh, CNN as well as something that my uh, former colleagues at 538 do particularly well, they take into year, uh, a number of years as far back as they possibly can a polling data to fully understand what, how precise, how accurate has this polling data tended to be in forecasting. So polling is one thing. Um, we are also looking at climatology or what I would call climatology for uh, political forecasting. That is the fundamentals, looking at stuff like fundraising, looking at stuff like the political leaning of the state in past elections. Um, this is, I would almost say this is almost like a model output statistic model, right? Um, where we are taking into account a slew of variables, not just the polling, but also the fundamentals, because what we often find is that things tend to come back towards the fundamentals. The polls, let's say the polls say that someone's ahead by five, but the fundamentals suggest that someone should be losing by six. It probably, the polls are closer to the truth, but instead of winning by six, the person may only win by three, which is something we often see in weather, right? Where maybe in the, the darkest days of winter, there's a low temperature forecast that's be negative 10 by the NAM model in New York City, but you know with Urban Heat Island, the chance of actually getting down a negative 10 is not very high. So the model output statistic might say, actually, you know, we think it might be closer to one degree Fahrenheit. And that's where it usually ends up being. So the any good political model takes into account, in my mind, the polling as well as those fundamentals. And from there, it's properly weighting the two factors to figure out where we'll actually end up. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. And we're back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard, and I'm talking today with senior writer and analyst for CNN Politics, Harry Enton. And you can see from the first part of the podcast that Harry knows the stuff in terms of politics, but also weather. You, we were talking about sort of how you make forecasts for sort of the political spectrum. And we are coming out of a fairly interesting and in some ways devastating hurricane season. And some of the things that, I, that come to mind when we talk about hurricane forecasting is that we're pretty good with the track forecast uh, with the models, but the intensity forecast can still be a challenge as we saw with storms like Hurricane Michael that made landfall in the panhandle of Florida. So I want to kind of go back into the political modeling and forecasting world are there any analogies in terms of that same sort of uh, sort of predicament, if you will, this notion that we get track forecasting pretty good, but the intensity forecast is a challenge? Is there some aspect of political forecasting that's you know pretty solid, but other aspects that you know that there's still issues with? 
Yeah, I, I would say, and one, one little thing I can't help but, you know, point out, of course, is, you know, you I think it is well established in the weather community that we've gotten considerably better at the track forecasting, right? It's something that's improved dramatically over the last 25 years versus those wind forecasts, the intensity forecasts, which we've obviously not had as good of a sort of improvement on. And in the political community, what I would say is we do a pretty good job of, you know, contacting people, even if response rates are down. We do a fairly good job of figuring out, you know, how different types of people are going to vote. But what we haven't necessarily figured out is who are the people who are going to turn out and vote. And that is still something that's very difficult for for public pollsters, especially, is nailing down those turnout models. Because I know it's kind of become almost cachet to say, you know, oh, um, it all comes down to turnout. You know, that's a phrase we hear a lot, oftentimes. But that really is true when it comes to polling. If we knew the people that were turning out, we could poll those percentages of the electorate and we would get a pretty good idea of who is going to win and lose. But oftentimes, we're not exactly sure about the turnout. And one of the things that the New York Times has done, for example, this election cycle, is presented a slew of turnout options and so that you can see that it really is dependent. A pollster's actual final output is highly dependent on what they think the model for those turning out will actually look like. And depending whether or not they get it correctly can make all the difference in the world of whether or not that pollster ends up correctly projecting the final outcome of the election. Okay, that's an interesting point. Bring something to mind in terms of data again in the models and something you were just talking about. In meteorology, the models that we use are, are geophysical and the dynamical models. They're solving very complex equations uh, to look at how this atmospheric fluid, if you will, changes one day out, five days out, 10 days out. And the data that goes in, we use the soundings from weather balloons, satellite data and whatnot. But Part of the process is something called quality control. We have to make sure that the data going in from a weather balloon is not flawed because it's going to impact the forecast. I imagine that the models, first of all, that you're using are more statistical-based models, but they're still sensitive to bad data. So do you throw bad data out? Are you sensitive to polling information where people may be telling you flawed or inaccurate information to throw the polls off? Is that a reality? I'm just curious about that. Well, I think the phrase that you're looking for is garbage in, garbage out. You know, if you, if, if you have bad data going in, it doesn't matter how good your models are, how complex they are, uh, the fact is that they'll come to the wrong conclusion. Uh, we do that in su- to some degree. Uh, what I don't believe that any good forecaster necessarily throws data completely out, but they will downweight it significantly. So we know which pollsters are doing things what I would call quote unquote, the right way or the proven track record way. And those pollsters tend to get their results upweighted in the model, while those who have a, say, worse track record, their results tend to get downweighted. It's plausible that maybe the bad pollsters tend to be right and the good pollsters, for whatever reason, tend to be wrong. But we are always careful about the quality control and the recognition that some pollsters, for any number of reasons, tend to get sort of better data. People who are more representative of the electorate than other pollsters do. Interesting. What about trends? We in, in meteorology again. Uh, I, you know, I often find myself explaining this to people. We actually do predict how this atmospheric fluid changes with our models, but we also do things like climatology forecasts, persistence, trends, and whatnot. Uh, how how important is trend analysis in your work? 
I, I would say that it definitely is. I mean, one of the questions that I think we've had to deal with in modeling is how much is a data point that was, you know, three months ago worth versus a data point now? I think, you know, there's sort of this tendency in politics to say, well, that little thing may have really moved the numbers and therefore we're going to completely dismiss that number that we sort of pulled three months ago. But what's interesting is that sometimes that's the case and sometimes you really shouldn't dismiss that number from three months ago. That could be for any number of reasons. Maybe there was some unique event that occurred a week ago and the effects of that will wear off. So the polling that was taken within a week of that event actually isn't fully representative of where the electorate will end up being. And that um, three-month observation may be better. But then there are other cases where we will have to wait the current data or the most up-to-date data the most that we possibly can. That's especially the case in primaries. So, you know, we know we have a presidential primary that's coming up in a little bit over a year. And the late trends there are very, very important. You have to, we know, historically speaking, that those late, late polls should be weighted up very, very highly versus in a primary versus in a general election, for example, hey, maybe those late polls shouldn't be weighted up so highly. Maybe we should weight those further out polls a little bit more. So trend line analysis and figuring out where the trend is and how much that current trend should be weighted versus that prior trend is something that I think a lot of people are having to deal with. And just to jump back a little bit further, further in the conversation, that's why it's so important to have many years of data that you possibly can in your data set so that you fully understand how exactly to weight your data. Are, are there situations, and I know this is the case in weather and even climate, where you have anomaly events, and those anomaly events just may not be captured by the sort of the climatological database or perhaps even the physical parameterizations in the model. Um, would you consider 2016, for an example, in terms of uh, just the whole political spectrum and personalities involved, would you consider that an anomaly event that would cause a challenge for the models? Uh, the black swan of 2016, as I like to phrase it. Um, you know, yeah, to some degree. I, I, I think, obviously, depending on how far back your data set goes, uh, Donald Trump's bid seemed quite improbable. I'm sure if your listeners were to Google my name and Donald Trump, you would see some articles written by me in the early days of his campaign that, in retrospect, are, uh, are a bad commentary on my own skills and also quite hilarious for the jokes that I make. Um, but, yeah, there are occasions where there are black swans. Um, but the hope is that by, you know, looking at a data set that goes back far enough and by more than that, understanding that your model may not capture all the uh, possible events, that you're able to relay the uncertainty to the audience. Uh, and I, I'm fearful that one of the things that occurred in 2016, especially in the primary, was the uncertainty wasn't entirely related to the audience, that we had a limited data size, that strange things sometimes do happen. And that's why it's so important to take into account polling in your model as well, right? We were talking about the fundamentals versus polling. Oftentimes things will revert back to the fundamentals, but sometimes they won't. And the polling, if it is good enough, will capture that dynamic. And and I'll point out that Donald Trump in the primary, for example, led in pretty much every poll of the New Hampshire primary from July 2015 onward and pretty much every national poll from that same point onward. And it wasn't that the polls were wrong in the primary. It was that people like me were so tied up in the fundamentals and believing that this couldn't possibly happen that we tended to dismiss that polling data when, in fact, we should have been upweighting it considerably more. 
We are talking with Harry Enton from CNN Politics, and we're talking all things weather, politics, and the intersection of the two. I want to pivot now because this is, a, as we're taping this podcast, we are approaching a midterm election. Uh, we're a little more than a week out. And we both know that weather can have an impact on elections. Uh, what, what type of weather typically favors a party or a candidate? Uh, I, I know there's some peer review literature, and frankly, we've even published some on it over at the University of Georgia looking back at Sandy. Uh, what, what is sort of the general rule of thumb in terms of weather and, and political uh, uh, parties and influence? I would say I would say the general rule is that incumbents, when they respond well to um, historic and bad weather events, tend to receive a boost in the polls. You know, you mentioned 2012 with uh, Barack Obama, the president at the time, and we saw that his numbers in on coastal New Jersey and uh, along uh, Long Island and Staten Island were considerably better than you might otherwise expect. Uh, I think that there was a real boost in his numbers because of what they saw was his uh, good reaction to. Hurricane Sandy. Uh, we saw, for instance, in Florida, uh, Rick Scott over the last few years, the current governor who's running for Senate there, has seen his numbers uh, climb to its highest ever levels uh, following some hurricanes in the last few years. Uh, and then I think my honest favorite story is back in 2006, Tom Reynolds, who was the head of the National uh, Congressional Cam uh, Republican Campaign Committee, was in a real fight for re-election. There was a real thought that he might lose lose. And then there was a freak lake effect snowstorm in Buffalo, which was the area that he represented. And he responded quite positively towards that. He was able to gather, you know, show himself on the ground, show that he was involved. And Reynolds, I believe because of that freak snowstorm, may have very well won a re-election that he might not otherwise have won. And remember, he was a Republican in a very good Democratic year in 2006. So I would say the number one thing that how weather affects elections and politicians is that if incumbents respond well to it and the constituents see them responding well to it, they tend to receive a, a bump in the polls. Uh, with some of the recent hurricane activity we've seen in North Carolina, Florida, Georgia, uh, elsewhere, do you have a sense of whether these events are affecting the current election cycle? I, I think that there was a real hope among Republicans, for example, that Rick Scott, who you know is running for Senate in Florida, will receive a boost in his polling uh, following the hurricanes. Interestingly, we really haven't seen that. Um, and in fact, Rick Scott is probably polling in his worst position all year. But I think that's part of what goes on in political forecasting. It also sometimes goes on in weather forecasting. That is, you might be so focused on an individual variable that you tend to cast aside the other variables that might be confounded or conflicting with those. So, for instance, in the state of Florida, yeah, Rick Scott might have had what a, you know, uh, electoral uh, uh, an analyst might say was a good hurricane, right? He reacted well to it. But at the same time, Bill Nelson and the Democrats were finally really matching him on television dollar for dollar for dollar. And that tended to override perhaps the effect that Rick Scott got in the polling that indicated that most people thought he had handled the hurricane well and certainly better than Bill Nelson. Uh, but it was overridden. And I think that's something we oftentimes see as in weather as well, right? Where we say, well, that low pressure system actually ends up a little bit closer to the coast than we thought. So it means X. But wait a minute, we didn't take into account that maybe that um, high pressure system in Quebec uh, acted a little bit differently than we thought. And that actually overrode the effect of the low being a little bit closer to the coastline. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. 
you should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And we're back on the Weather Geeks podcast, and I'm talking with Harry Enten, CNN Politics, formerly of 538, and we're talking about politics, forecasting, elections, weather, climate, you name it. Uh, I want to stay on the topic that we were just discussing. You're talking about sort of the impacts of weather on incumbents or candidates running for office. What about turnout? Uh, there's, I've, I've read in the peer review literature and elsewhere that there's this notion that if it's raining or dreary weather, that tends to help uh, conservative candidates uh, in terms of their turnout base. If not, it tends to uh, favor the other party and uh, other political ideology. Um, is, is there any truth to that? I think that there is some truth. Obviously, weather will keep those, bad weather will keep those who might be less likely to vote from voting. And so when I read that peer review literature and that suggests that Republicans are less affected by weather than Democratic voters, that's at least in this day and age because Democratic voters tend to be lower propensity voters, right? They tend to be younger voters who tend to turn out less. They tend to be Latino voters who tend to turn out less. Um, but I would not be surprised if that kind of flips around around in the upcoming years as the two-party bases kind of have, are sort of in flux right now and changing. And what we're seeing is that, uh, especially among Democrats, college-educated voters are becoming a larger part of their base, and college-educated voters tend to turn out in higher numbers. So I think if some of these studies were taken, say, 25, 30, 35 years ago, they might have come out with different sort of outcomes of how different parties are affected. But I don't think there's a doubt for sure that turnout can certainly be affected by weather, and the party that tends to have the higher propensity turnout voters tends to benefit more from bad weather. And I think we saw that, for instance, in May. Uh, just a few years ago in 2014 when there was some really bad weather in the northern part of the state, uh, which I think a lot of people thought was going to be bad for Republicans because Republicans tend to be in higher numbers in the northern part of Maine, but in fact was good for Republicans because uh, Republican voters were higher propensity voters and the bad weather wasn't going to keep them away while it did keep some Democrats away from voting. Yeah, that was actually in a recent election here in Georgia where I'm located. Uh, there was some speculation that I saw out there in uh, social media and, and even in regular media, too, in terms of the Ossoff uh, uh, election, I guess, a few years ago, uh, I, I believe when he was running for a, a congressional seat here in the metropolitan Atlanta area, there was, there was a fairly rainy day around here. So you started seeing some of this type of discussion going on. And any insight on that yourself? Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, I know that that uh, runoff well. That was uh, back in, I want to say it was June 20th in 2017. Uh, there were some thunderstorms that were in, you know, the metropolitan area, and there were some questions about whether or not, oh, it's going to hit the Fulton County part of the county, and that might be, you know, more favorable to the Republican Karen Handel versus if it hits the Cobb, which is more favorable towards Ossoff. I think in instances like that where people were so energetic, so many people wanted to come out and vote that I'm not sure the bad weather necessarily impacted that. And I'll further note something that's key is that as more and more people are turning out to vote early in elections, and that was certainly the case in the Georgia 6th special election, I think bad weather has less of an impact because people, you know, many more people have voted early, and the people who might wait until election day to vote tend to be older voters who also tend to be people who 
don't necessarily have a lot of better things to do and will come out and vote no matter what. Yeah, I was actually wondering about that because you know I am familiar with some of this this literature. Giving a given a paper that uh, a couple of my graduate students worked on a few years ago, I, I, I think there probably needs to be a study sort of sort of looking at exactly what you said. What are the impacts of perhaps of weather in the er modern era of early voting and, and absentee ba ba balloting? I think that would be interesting to see. What, how do you think the current president is doing with significant weather events over the last? Couple Couple of years. Well, I, I think, in all honesty, that I've, you know, th th there's a whole slew of things we can get into on Hurricane Maria um, and you know Puerto Rico, and I think that there are certain hurricanes that he's reacted better to than other ones. Um, I think that if you look at the polling, what you generally see is that most his he gets some pretty good numbers when it comes to hurricanes overall, as compared to his overall sort of approval ratings. Obviously, the events in Puerto Rico, uh, he was seen as less presidential than other ones. But I think overall, when you see a president and you see him out in the field and you see him acting presidential, those tend to help raise the numbers in the same way that, you know, if you have a mayor who responds well to a snowstorm in the Northeast and the Midwest, it tends, tends to raise the numbers. Versus, obviously, I think President Bush you know, a little over a decade ago with his response to Katrina in New Orleans, uh, I, I think that most people would would see that and would say he didn't react so well to that. And the polling data tended to reflect that while his drop after Katrina perhaps wasn't as much as some people would believe it to be. There was certainly a dip in the numbers. Uh, and so if you, you know, respond well to hurricanes, which most people have thought that this president has done for the most part, with exceptions, as we noted, I think his overall popularity has has benefited from his response than has necessarily decreased his numbers. Now, talking to Harry Enden of CNN Politics, uh, I want to come back down to an area where you said you have quite a bit of interest, and that's in snow and snow, snow forecasting. So we've been talking at the national level about presidential and congressional elections. How do big snowstorms, for example, there in the Northeast, these mid, uh, nor'easters, uh, how do they impact the fate of a local to state level politician? For example, I can think of a couple of instances in the recent years where uh, there were big snow forecasts and perhaps there wasn't as much in the, in the sort of I-95 corridor as people thought. And, and there were things that were done by politicians proactively. Uh, have you noticed any impact on, on local to state politicians from these snowstorms in the Northeast? Well, I would say a few things. Uh, number one, I would say that I think it was the beginning of the end for Michael Bloomberg's administration back, I want to say it was 2010, maybe it was 2009, the Boxing Day snowstorm in, New in, in, in the Northeast, in New York specifically. And you may remember that as a storm that was not very well forecasted, where it, initially it looked like it was going to hit New York, then it looked like it was going to go out to sea, and then all of a sudden at the last minute it came hooked back and kind of, if you watch the radar, it was a ridiculous thing where the storm kind of almost backed its way in from the Atlantic Ocean. Mike Bloomberg wasn't in New York at the time. I think he was out in his, um, you know, winter getaway down in the Bahamas or wherever he was. And I think that that was sort of the beginning of the end for his approval ratings and sort of opened up the door to someone who was really opposed to the Michael Bloomberg way. And that obviously ended up with Mayor Bill de Blasio. Obviously wasn't the sole reason for it, but I think it was sort of a contributing factor, at least started a trend line. I would say overall, no, I haven't necessarily 
seen too many politicians get in trouble over the most recent snowstorms, whether they be in 2015, that was a fake out of New York. We still ended up with about 10 inches, but obviously not the, you know, 24 inches that a lot of people spoke about. But I'll also add that there's a lot of literature or at least studies that have been done about Chicago snowstorms in the late 70s and the bad reaction that a lot of mayors had to that and may have cost some mayors some reelection after Mayor Daley had uh, passed away there. And I can't remember the gentleman's name who was the mayor who came in, um, but he was seen as having a quote unquote bad snowstorm. And I would argue that that and certainly uh, contributed to his defeat when he ran for reelection. That's that's interesting. Now, we're we're winding down the Weather Geeks podcast. Uh, Been a great discussion with uh, Harry Enton. But I want to touch on one topic that has all kinds of political overtones, but it's related to weather, and that's climate change. Uh, How is this topic from your lens evolving as a political topic? Yeah, I I think that there uh, we have not really heard much discussion of it um, in politics, which to me is so fascinating. I I think, you know, Democrats and Republicans are just in two different universes. I think that that was always the case. But I think it really has that trend has accelerated in the last decade or so. You know, when Al Gore came out with his film, I think that while, you know, in some ways that got climate change into the uh, mainstream in a way that hadn't done before, it also politically polarized the issue. You know, I remember when Newt Gingrich and Nancy Pelosi were sitting on a couch saying that we have to deal with this. Uh, that Those days are long gone. Um, but I do think that at the same time, there are interesting local effects um, about climate change. For instance, in Florida, which is a state we spoke about earlier, I think that there's little doubt that uh, climate change is impacting the coastlines in that state. And what you see is Republican politicians there perhaps offering up a viewpoint that is certainly more in line with the scientific consensus about climate change than Republicans nationally. And that is because you're seeing the real world effects of climate change. And I I think that's something that will be interesting to see over the next few years as there's more real world effects of climate change, seeing how voters on each side of the aisle react, especially Republicans, and then whether or not the politicians follow them. We have seen in a number of instances when we've had bad weather events that the polling on climate change tends to shift a little bit. And so if these events become more frequent, it wouldn't surprise me if Republicans, not just Democrats, believe that climate change and specifically man-made climate change is a big issue and a big problem. Yeah, and I, I agree with that. I think one of the, I, I did an analysis for something I wrote for Forbes last year uh, when, when the president announced that we were pulling out of the Paris Agreement as the U.S., and there was a significant media bump in the coverage of climate, but it was only because of that particular sort of uh, pulse event, if you will, the, the, the sort of removal from the Paris Agreement. Uh, you know, I've, I've often argued and tweeted that there, there needs to just be broader coverage in, in, in the mainstream media on the topic. Uh, I think they do a good job of that here at the, the Weather Channel and, and, and actually also at uh, other places that you are as well. So I think there are people that are covering it, but I think there needs to be more of a discussion. Uh, do you think it'll be a bigger issue in 2020, or I guess it pretty much relates to what you just said, whether we continue to see more intense and frequent events? I, I think I think it's that, but I also think that the Democratic field will be considerably further to the left than it has been in prior years. And I do think that climate change and climate discussion will become a bigger part of at least the Democratic primary. I, I, I tend not to think that the 
current president of the United States, Mr. Donald Trump, will discuss climate change very much and will probably dismiss it in certain certain terms in the ways that he does. Um, but I think certainly in the primary season, it will become a bigger part. And especially if there are um, unfortunate bad events, it may also become part of the general election discussion as well. Even recently in the local, I guess the governor's race in Florida, it, it, I, I was surprised at how much front and center climate change took in the debate with uh, Gillum and DeSantis. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think Florida is a perfect place for that. I would point out that another place I'd be interested in is Alaska. Um, You know, places that are being impacted the most by the changing climate, I think, are the places where politicians on both sides of the aisle have to admit to at least some reality that the scientific consensus has come to. Um, And so I would expect that is climate change develops and more than that starts impacting the ways that at least these models suggest that it will, that we will start seeing politicians perhaps meet more towards the center on the issue. Uh, Before I let you get out of here, any predictions for the elections this cycle? Uh, Well, uh, you know, with God as my witness and saying that there's a wide enough margin of error, I I would say that the predictions that I would have at this particular point is that Democrats will win back the House of Representatives. It is plausible that Republicans do. It's just not the most likely scenario. And in the Senate, the most likely scenario is that Republicans hold on to control. But again, there is the possibility that Democrats win back control. But uh, both of those are relatively low probability events. But as we know in weather and we We've learned in politics, sometimes low, probab- low probability events do, in fact, occur. What about your what's, what's your sense for some of the gubernatorial races around? Yeah, I, I, th- I think that this is going to be one of the better years for Democrats uh, nationwide. Uh, I think in Florida, for example, which hasn't had a Democratic governor elected since 1994, Andrew Gillum is clearly ahead of Ron DeSantis, the Republican uh, in the, your home state of Georgia. Uh, a close race. I do think that Brian Kemp is favored. If you look at the polling data, uh, I think the question is whether or not there is a December runoff. Remember, in the state of Georgia, if no candidate gets to 50 percent of the vote in November, there's a runoff in December. And that could impact things in some interesting ways depending on who turns out for that for that runoff so uh, Stacey Abrams certainly is in the game I do think that the if I were to put a finger on the scale that Brian Kemp is the favorite at this time have, have you peeked at the long-term weather forecast for November 6th I you know I, I believe that I have I have looked at the uh, CPC and I did see that in the east that we may in fact see a warming trend off of the cooler trend that we've seen recently um, which you know what a good good thing I don't need to be the worst thing is following a snowstorm on election day I already have my my arms already filled I remember back in 2012 there was a snowstorm in New York about five inches of snow fell the day after the election and I was like wait a minute what's going on there's too much news to follow this year I don't think we're going to get that. All right. That's where we'll have to end it. Harry Enton, it's always a pleasure to have you. Harry Enton, he's a writer and senior political analyst, senior writer and analyst uh, for CNN Politics. Always a pleasure to have you on Weather Geeks. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.